The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. looking at a passage of Scripture that is in many ways a most difficult one, and yet its meanings are relatively plain. Second Peter 2 is a denunciation of false prophets, false teachers of Christian truth. I said to you two weeks ago, this is not a denunciation of representatives of Islam. That couldn't be because Islam didn't come into being for six centuries after this. It's not a denunciation of Hinduism or Confucianism or Buddhism or any of the other great religions of the world that teach contrary to uh, biblical truth. It's a denunciation in the most scathing terms of people who parade as true representatives of the truth of God in Christ. And yet they are not. They are false. And Peter has had to contend with these people. He doesn't name them. But what he does is give his listeners, his readers, tools and and bits of insight by which they can recognize when they are receiving something false. Now, another thing that makes this chapter difficult is that it's not broken up into nice little units. It's almost like one long flowing sentence. So having brought you to uh, the beginning of verse 10, last time I'm just going to back up and read verse 9, which isn't even the beginning of a sentence and go forward for the remainder of this chapter today. Listen carefully. This, in all its hard-sounding words, is the Word of God. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant and will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression as a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained that prophet's madness. These are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm, 
For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise men freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after having escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, their last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is too in all its difficulties and all its harshness, is the Word of God. You've heard it said, and maybe you've even said it yourself, I just didn't get anything out of the preaching or the worship service of that church. That is said by people we sometimes call church hoppers, who visit around like grasshoppers from one church to the next sampling, trying to find some ideal of worship or preaching or liturgy or music that will please them, and they come away and say, I just didn't get anything. Maybe they're being very unfair, but quite often their comment these days is actually justified. As people can come to the ecclesiastical table of worship in America and many other places, and go away totally unsatisfied. They came seeking the bread of life, and they received only stones of some sort. I've already said it this morning, Second Peter 2 is a very severe New Testament chapter. It, it wore me out reading that, I'm telling you. It, you know, I don't speak that way about very many things. You get to the end of Peter lambasting and pounding what is wrong with false teaching, and you want to say, well, tell us what you really think, Peter. I mean, what he really thinks is pretty bad. There's hardly any other chapter like this in the Bible except perhaps I think of Jesus in the latter part of Matthew driving home his points negatively about the Pharisees and how they claim to be the people of God and the ones so devoted to the Word of God, and yet Jesus told them they did not have the right spirit of the matter at all and were themselves lost people. We must be careful in our Christianity that we are not simply narrowly critical of everybody who is not exactly like us. That is wrong. We may be criticizing other redeemed believers with whom we can make uh, concerted efforts to work together even if we may differ over some particulars of faith. But in the contemporary church in America, the situation is a lot like what Peter was addressing because there are so many false and shallow representations of the gospel of Christ. And Peter, you see, had no patience as the Holy Spirit spoke through him, no patience 
for that which pretended to be true when it was, in fact, deceitful and false. And he's warning people. He's giving people tools or at least evaluative principles to look at something and say, well, how would I recognize if I was being fed a false, empty message instead of real Christianity? Certainly, this isn't always easy. And notice Peter nowhere gave a list. Maybe his, those who got this letter were wishing to, so Peter, would you, just, would you just give us some names, you know, for who we shouldn't listen to on the radio or who we shouldn't watch on TV? Uh, that guy, Cornelius, or this fellow over here, John the, the, the Great or somebody, stay away from him. You notice he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he lists characteristics of what the bent gospel acts like and looks like and hopes that people will be able to apply these things. Let me just remind you, it's been two weeks since we looked at this together, and let me just remind you of some of the things we saw in the first ten verses, and then I'll go on with a few more points that are here. First of all, I, we saw last time that false teaching that which is skewed off in a wrong direction has been around since Old Testament days. In fact, he uses an Old Testament example here in what I read today. I'm not going to go into the story of Balaam, the son of Baor, but he was a prophet of sorts who enemies of Israel tried to get him to pronounce a curse on Israel. And he said, I, I can't do that. I can't curse what God hasn't cursed. Well, then they upped the ante and offered Balaam more money, and he started thinking, well, I guess I could manufacture a curse. And it was Balaam's donkey, you recall, one of those incredible miracles of the Old Testament where the voice of God spoke through an animal and told Balaam not to curse God's people. Well, it's been around all the time then, this false belief. Secondly, it, it works subtly. It works deceitfully. Nobody carries a sign on their shoulder saying, I am a false teacher. Beware. Quite the opposite. They come and subtly subvert things and slandering things, and those who aren't very careful will be taken in. Thirdly, I mentioned two weeks ago that false teaching, you can, one of the litmus tests is, how does it present Christ? Is Christ fully the God-man, God in flesh? Is he at the center of all the teaching? Thirdly, you can not be gulled or taken in just because something is popular. We know that false teaching very often is popular. It has some angle to it, some catch to it, some worm on the hook for you to bite at that, that uh, brings the crowds. And people say, wow, this is neat, new new teaching, new presentation, and uh, popularity is no measure of its truth. Then we saw a little bit last time that God is going to ultimately judge false doctrine while rescuing his own people, as he did with Noah and Lot, two uh, prime examples of men of the Old Testament who had to live among all kinds of falseness. The mature Peter here is angry He's angry because young believers are being deliberately muddled and twisted and uh, given wrong things to believe that would keep them from growing and honoring Christ in their lives. So he has some more warnings in verses 10 through the end of this chapter, and I'm going to just bring out several of the main points. We could go into a lot of side paths here, but 
Uh, I'm not going to say it would be depressing to do that because all Scripture is beneficial. But I think we can deal primarily in the several main heads that are here in the second part of this chapter. So first of all, for today, I want you to see uh, Peter saying that false teaching nearly always links itself with loose morality. He hammers this over and over in this passage. Uh, verse, back in verse 2, he said the false teacher uh, deals in sensuality, uh, that word that deals with the pleasures of the flesh. In verse 10, they pursue the lusts of defiling passions. Verse 12, they are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct. Verse 13, they are blots and blemishes. 14, they have eyes full of adultery. It's heavily implied that sexual deviation particularly accompanies false witness. And so one thing we could take from this is a warning that when aberrations in marriage or sexual practices or illicit pleasures are seen in the life of a Christian teacher, we ought to say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't seem very consistent with right doctrine. False teaching has a way of giving an opening to false living. This isn't theoretical stuff, ladies and gentlemen. In our own presbytery in the Philadelphia area where I work with the trustees of Westminster Seminary, these things are visible in the lives of elders ordained to the church. False living sends the train off the track. But many times we don't see it for a long time. It can be hidden today. Today it can have to do with what a man's doing at a computer screen late at night and nobody knows about it for months or years. But sooner or later you see the equivalency of false teaching with false living. If uh, doctrine does not emphasize the sovereignty of God, the cross of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, the new birth by the Holy Spirit, these cardinal doctrines, it's probably not promoting righteous living either. So you need to look at a leader. Look behind the scenes if you're able to. Say to yourself, what does that man's marriage look like? Does he tell the truth? Is he someone who's a person of integrity? I think of my own childhood pastor, a man who died only about a year and a half ago in his 90s, a man I revere as much as you're allowed to revere a human being, not as the world's greatest preacher. People did not crowd around his church saying, you've never heard preaching as great as this. It was above average preaching. It was biblical preaching. But it came from a man whose life was so transparent and godly right into his 90s and up to his death that people who experienced that ministry would say, you don't see anything or expect anything false from the life of that man. His character shines so clearly true to the commandments of God and the ethics of the Bible. So it should be a warning to us if a man's life seems to be slip-sliding around a little bit. We're not saved by keeping God's law, but we will keep God's law if, indeed, we are believing the Scriptures of salvation by grace through faith. God's law will be showing its effect in our lives and in the lives of those who preach and teach. And you have a right to hold us to that. 
Now, secondly, after that association of false teaching and false living, look at verse 17, which is a bit of a turning point in this passage, where Peter describes now a new emphasis, more or less, on the emptiness of false teaching. He says, these men are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Whatever else is wrong with false teaching, it has unsatisfying emptiness as all gospel substitutes must have. Now, you may not know that there's a parallelism between Second Peter as a letter and the small letter right before Revelation called Jude. Jude is just one chapter. But uh, it's, it's pretty easy to read those two and see, hmm, there's a lot of parallels here. We think the explanation is probably that just as Matthew knew the Gospel of Mark and Luke knew the Gospel of Mark, Peter probably had read Jude because they almost echoes his thoughts here. Thoughts from Jude 12 and 13 say this. These men, these false teachers, are, quote, clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. They are autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. They are wandering stars for whom deepest blackness is reserved forever. So Jude was uh, campaigning pretty much against some of the same things in terminology very similar to Peter. If you travel much in the Middle East, I've only been there once, but uh, it's a dominant impression right away if you go to Israel or Palestine or any of the surrounding countries, how dry the place is. I just remember coming back from Israel in 1997 with the Bible phrase in my mind, a dry and thirsty land where no water is. There's water there, but it's uh, carefully guarded, and all the agriculture that goes on requires irrigation, artificial irrigation, to grow orchards and crops, and you can't just, you know, plant a wheat field out in the desert and expect it to bloom. It doesn't happen. So springs of water have immense importance in the Middle East, and no wonder that the metaphor applies to those who teach and preach and present biblical doctrine. Are they springs where you can go and be refreshed, or are they empty, dry, arid sources like those the cowboy movies always used to have, you know, Roy Rogers would be riding along and desperate for water in a dry place, and they, oh, Buffalo Springs is just up ahead, and they get there, and here's a couple of skulls by the former spring where the buffalo drank and died of alkali water, and don't drink here. Well, the Scripture's saying these false teachers are like when people approach a spring and think, I'll find refreshment, I'll fill my canteen, I'll pour it over my head and get relief from this desert, and what do they get? Alkali dust. There's a place in Jeremiah chapter 2 where that prophet takes up the words and thoughts of God and he has the Lord say, My people have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Daily spiritual life, trusting Christ, is a thirsty business. We need to, I love this this verb, to assuage. It's one of my favorite English words. Doesn't it just kind of roll off your tongue? To assuage your thirst. 
Jesus knew we needed to do that and do it on a regular basis, not with only real water like the pastor's styrofoam cup up here, but with the satisfaction of the Word of God and the truth of God. In John 4, 14, Jesus said, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is what true teaching, teaching according to the gospel given by the Holy Spirit, does in the life of a Christian. It gives us peace and assurance and encouragement and fortitude and faith and hope. All these things like sweet water to drink. I chose for the beginning of our service John Newton's hymn that has the the verse in it, See the streams of living water springing from eternal life to well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows our thirst to assuage? The gift of salvation in Christ is not a drink from a scummy, green, stagnant pond. It's drinking day by day, year by year, from a rising, clear, refreshing spring whose source is in God himself. Now, there's so many people today who promise you this with their teaching. They'll, they'll promise you health and wealth, you know, obey this, do what I say here, let me pray over you, and you'll have nothing but, you know, good fortune in your career, or you'll have unending health, your disease will disappear. There's so many of these health and wealth type messages of uh, promising more than the Bible is necessarily ready to deliver on your order. I feel like sometimes people are being enticed. If you think back, you probably have to go back 50 years to attending a circus or a carnival, and, you know, they would have the sideshow at the carnival, and there'd be some guy with a loud voice, come in, ladies and gentlemen, you know, see the two-headed woman, see the dog with six legs, or, and, and they want your several dollars, so you'll enter the tent and see these great wonders. And then, of course, you'll exit the end of the tent wishing you hadn't paid the several dollars because you didn't get anything authentic out of what you were enticed to see. That's what some people are like today as they promise things the Bible does not promise. Or they exaggerate or twist something and misapply a word of Scripture. And people walk away decimated, just dismayed. Because they said, well, God promised this. That preacher told me I would have this, and I don't have it. What's going on? Well, what's going on was the promise wasn't being applied in a way that God intended you to understand it. So there can be unsatisfying emptiness from gospel substitutes. But then the third thing today that I'd have you look at here is the final doom awaiting superficial knowledge of Christ. This is printed all over this chapter. Again, 2 Peter 2 talks about eternal condemnation for false teachers. This is a hard, hard-hitting chapter in which Peter just gives no quarter to those who are misreading or misapplying the Word of God. And he Look at some of the things he has to say. Verse 1, they bring swift destruction on themselves. Verse 9, they're being held over for the day of judgment. Verse 12, like beasts 
they will perish. They have no rational understanding. Verse 13, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. And then verse 17, maybe the, the worst sentence of doom there in the middle of 17. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. This is just another way of the Bible describing hell. Sometimes hell is described in terms of flames and suffering and active regret. Here the, destruc- the description Peter has in mind is not of flames. It's of blank nothingness, blackness, isolated completely from God who is light. After all, 1 John 1 tells us God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. So if you are being sent to the gloom of utter darkness, you are being sent as far away from fellowship with God and knowledge of Him as you can be sent. John Calvin commented on this passage in that regard. He said, in place of the momentary darkness in which these men now dwell, there is prepared for them a much thicker eternal night. All this leads to the reason why Peter's being so hard on these people, because it's possible to have mere superficial acquaintance with Christ and even to be ordained or set up somehow as a teacher and preacher without having the saving, life-transforming, eternity-shaping knowledge of Christ as Lord. People can mouth a version of the Christian gospel. They can read the passage that you go to their service, and they might even read this passage. Would they see it applying to themselves? Not at all. They'd probably tell you somebody else who fits this, but they don't. You know, I remember a time, I don't know if my wife remembers this or not, but uh, many, many years ago, we had a mouse in our house. We had a hard time getting rid of him, not our present house. And uh, this mouse would, you know, leave evidence behind that he'd been munching on things or if any food was left somewhere. And somehow, I remember, I guess we left the top off the cookie jar one time, and he got in the cookie jar. Now, that was the worst sin as far as I was concerned. You know, <laughs> leave my cookies alone. And I remember my wife making this statement years ago. She, she was, had a good humor about it happily. She said, uh, you know, just because something is in the cookie jar, don't mistake it for a cookie. In, in other words, mice are not cookies. And just because a preacher or teacher is in a Christian church with a steeple and a cross on the wall, and maybe he wears a robe and he's the reverend doctor or whatever, don't necessarily assume on that basis alone that he's a true interpreter of the Word of God. Apostasy is always a possibility. Now, there's quickly two basic ways in which apostasy can be understood, and one is wrong and one is biblical. The first way that's wrong is apostasy means someone became a Christian, was truly transformed by Christ, and if you would read verses like 20 through 21 here in this passage, you might think that's what's being talked about because it says that people had uh, come to some kind of knowledge of the way of Christ or they knew the way of righteousness and turned away from it. It sounds like they were Christians and they turned away and now they're not Christians. Well, we can't accept that because it simply contradicts too much other scripture that says that nobody snatches a true believer out of the hands of our Savior and our Lord. 
Jesus said it himself, John 10, 28. Nobody snatches them out of my hand or my Father's hand. So how do we interpret this person? How do we interpret apostasy? It's someone who entered in the front door to have enough knowledge, at least knowledge. See, knowledge and experience aren't necessarily the same thing. Enough knowledge of what it was to profess Christ that they could talk Christian language, speak Christian categories, and yet have no true redemption of the heart. And it turned out in the end that they were just pretenders. But the problem is now as pretenders, they're teaching others as if they were genuine apostles or genuine disciples. And if you challenge my understanding that there is such a person as that, all I have to say to you is Judas Iscariot. That's how we understand Judas. The man was never truly a believer in Christ. He traveled incredibly right there in the heart of, with the physical presence of Jesus for two or three years, talked with Jesus in, at nights over a campfire. Knew, they knew one another very well. But in the end, Judas belonged to the devil. And Jesus himself said, better for that man if, if he had never been born. He wasn't a Christian who lost it. He was a man who never was a Christian. But he somehow could blend in with the crowd. In fact, blend in so well, who did the others elect to keep the money? That's what's incredible. Judas had to have some impressive characteristics. They trusted him to be the treasurer. Back when God touched the American colonies with what we call the Great Awakening of the early 1700s before the Revolutionary War, this was a sweeping, true, God-inspired revival that came. We could spend much time talking about how it started under the ministry of Jonathan Edwards and uh, George Whitfield and others. But here in the middle colonies of America, there was a man who was very much a part of it, who many don't know too well. He was a Presbyterian minister. His name was Gilbert Tennant. He had a father who was a minister, two brothers who were ministers. Gilbert Tennant was a very effective evangelist. But he had a controversial role in the Great Awakening of the 1730s for one particular sermon which he preached, and I guess he repeated preaching it numerous times, and it was published as a, a booklet. The, the sermon was called The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry. And Gilbert Tennant dared to say what nobody else was probably quite brave enough to say, that one reason so many churches were dead spiritually was their pastors didn't appear to have any real life-changing knowledge of God and Christ themselves. How could you expect a church to be alive if the pastor isn't a convert? And Tennant called it what it was. He said, we've got hundreds of unconverted ministry, unconverted ministers. Boy, you should see how well that was received. Man, that man was almost buried under tonnage of criticism and ostracism for making such an emphasis, even though he was speaking the truth. Gilbert Tennant concluded this. He said, an unconverted minister is like a man who would teach others to swim before he has learned it himself, and so he is drowned in the act and dies like a fool. Well, folks, it is difficult to always discern the false message because it is often very much like, at least in, in words and phrasing and, and topics, 
what the true gospel. You say, how am I supposed to know this? How am I, if I tune in the radio or the TV, how am I supposed to know who's false and who is true? Well, first of all, be confident of this. God knows the difference. And we got it last time at the end of verse 9 there. God not only knows who the false teacher is, he knows how to rescue the godly from that and keep that person under punishment until the day of judgment. But you need to be discerning. You need to look at the person's life and say, does this life, does the man's marriage, are his finances or his public reputation, is it one for goodness and ethical behavior? Or is it kind of suspect and he's always got, you know, the, the salacious side of the press suggesting that he's having affairs over here or he's mishandling money over there or something. Hebrews chapter 10 says, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant, who has insulted the Spirit of grace? We cannot always know who that person is, but if you will listen, if you will compare if you will have your Bible open, if you will ask questions of those spiritual leaders you trust, you will at least over time be able to spot these things. As I close, let me tell you, the most distasteful part of this chapter, I said it's not a fun chapter to read, the least fun part is the closing verse. That's not something I would say if I was determining what was going to be in Second Peter 2, but I read it to you because God ordered it to be said through Peter by the Holy Spirit. Here's this proverb, and it is indeed in the book of Proverbs. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What an ugly statement to end this segment of teaching. And yet the picture given is revolting because the diverting, the deceptions that can be attached to the true Word of God, making it something false, ought to be utterly revolting to us. Some people are diverting that teaching knowledgeably, deliberately. They know what they're doing. Others are just plain ignorant, but Peter's primarily worried about those who are doing it deliberately. And he says eternal souls are at stake here. So we need to pay heed to these things. But in the end of the day, we don't end up, I hope, after reading this chapter, pointing fingers and say, aha, Pastor Rogers told me this church and that church and this ministry and that ministry by name are false and stay away. I haven't named any contemporary ministry, just as Peter didn't. I've given you the tests. I've said, think of messages you hear that if it's a little bit off key, ask yourself these questions about it. But you know what I want to do as I close is turn it on us, not on somebody else out there, because how self-righteous we can be when we read something like this, right? Oh, well, we're sure glad there's no false prophets in our midst. Oh, really? Are there possibly idle hearers of God's Word who politely sit beside Sunday after Sunday, those who are true converts to Jesus Christ, and they blend in because they're here like everybody else and they politely attend the ministry of God's Word. But they know 
deep down, that they've never surrendered themselves to Jesus Christ. They know that they don't have a heart concern for the Word of God or zeal to know Christ better and better. And they need to ask themselves a question. Is it possible that you may be that spiritual counterfeit who has managed to hide among the crowd of Christ's true people? If there's a twinge of conviction about that, I say, good, because it's time for you to end your deception. It's time for you to bow low before Christ and confess to him that you've been wearing a facade, that you've been carrying out a masquerade, that you want to be acknowledged before him as one who cries out and says, oh God, I have no hope apart from the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Will you give me a new birth? Will you give me your Holy Spirit to take control of me? And then instead of facing a future after death in the terror of infinite darkness, you can join hundreds that are in this room today knowing that you will face the light and the delight of the face and welcome of the Lord Jesus Christ and dwell in his presence forever. Amen. Father, what hard things Peter has had to say. They're like body blows. And yet we understand that he's talking about eternal things and he can't be gentle. He's talking about error that has eternal consequence. So thank you that he spoke so harshly. Lord God, spare us from presumptuousness that we in ourselves, because of who we are or what denomination we're in or what local church we're part of, that we've got it made. This isn't about me. I pray if anyone has an inkling that it's about them, you would humble them before yourself. Open to them the door of delight in welcoming Jesus Christ as living Lord. May we be faithful to him and faithful to his gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.